from UNH Cooperative Extension. This is Overinformed on IPM. thinking a whole lot about brown marmorated stink bug up here in New England. For those of you who live in areas hard hit by BMSB, um, it might sound a little quaint that we're just starting to see agricultural problems with this invasive pest insect in the Northeast. Luckily for us, there has been an army of entomologists and crop production specialists working out the details of how to protect our crops from these bugs. I've chatted with a whole bunch of them and I'm geared up to over-inform you over several podcast episodes, so buckle up. Before we get into the details of monitoring, which is what we're going to cover in this episode, let's cover a few basics with someone who knows this system better than most entomologists on the planet, a freshly minted PhD in the field. I'm Dr. Nicole Quinn. I am a recent graduate of Virginia Tech, um, completed my PhD in December currently a postdoctoral scientist with the USDA in Newark, Delaware. So yeah, it's it's a brown marmorated stink bug. People know it as the bug that gets in their house in the fall. It's a, you know, a nuisance pest in that sense. What a lot of people don't realize, or a lot of the public don't realize, is that it's actually a really important crop pest as well. All sorts of stuff, you know, pretty much um, with some exceptions, most things with a fruit, I would say. So, you know, everything from like apples and peppers and corn, just just anything with a fruit or seed on it, basically. I think they're up to over 150 things that it will attack now. It has a mouth part that's kind of like a straw, basically, and it uses that to like poke into the fruit and it injects a bunch of saliva and uh, enzymes and things like that and liquefies it a little bit and then sucks it back out. And so the fruit is still edible to humans after this, but it just, it doesn't look good. So it has these kind of like little, they call it corking. So they're just these kind of depressions. And then when you peel back the skin of whatever it is, it'll kind of look like like cork, you know, it'll be these brown dead spots. And it, you know, it also can make the fruit a weird shape. So all of these things make the fruit not marketable, monetary losses for the grower. So that's, that's the, you know, from a economic standpoint, the, the real issue with the stink bug, not just that it's annoying how it gets in your house. Yeah, this past summer, you know, like your PhD all kind of blends together after a little bit. But uh, my, this, I think it was this past summer, they had um, some pretty big problems with the, actually the native stink bugs in some of the orchards um, in Virginia and West Virginia. So it's just like, you know, these populations, they tend to cycle. Um, and so, which means, you know, some years there'll be more, some years there'll be fewer for whatever reason. Um, usually a combination of environmental and, uh, the, you know, the natural enemy kind of response. You know, they, it might vary over time, basically. So an important aspect of recognizing BMSB damage in your crop, something to keep in mind, there's no difference between the damage done by native stink bugs and the invasive BMSB. You may find the errant bump or bruise from a stink bug feed here and there from year to year. Um, There are a few other things that can cause a single depression with some corking under that that could be mistaken for stink bug damage too. The major difference here is the sheer scale of potential population buildup. 
overwintered adults come out and they lay eggs by June or July without natural enemies to control the number of bugs out there. Those nymphs grow up to cause feeding damage in fruit and vegetable crops by August or September. Thinking about late season apple injury, you would be seeing multiple feeding injuries on one fruit and large numbers of fruit being affected. We have not seen this in New Hampshire yet. In part one of this series, I chatted with a few entomologists about whether or not we should be alarmed about the rise in numbers we're seeing in our regional trapping efforts and whether or not this is a sign of serious crop losses to come. I'm going to return to this topic of pest status with somebody a little closer to home. I chatted with Peter Yench at the Hudson Valley Lab to get some perspective as these pest outbreaks move north. What, what, what would you be looking for that would make you freak out? Um, so we haven't seen early season injury to palm fruit. We have seen it at the lab where they're on peaches earlier, like in July. Earlier than July, uh, we, just, we just haven't seen. Now, by the time the peppers get going, and jalapeno peppers is sort of my go-to vegetables for what they, what they prefer, uh, then there's green peppers, you know, of course there's sweet corn and other things, but, you know, the organic producers of jalapeno peppers are the ones that really get hammered. Even at that, when we saw economic injury to jalapeno, it didn't occur until the middle of August. And that was the, that was the onset of it. But by, by the time we got to the first week of September, we had put up a pheromone-based light trap using sprayed netting. And we had these halogen lights run by our little Honda generators, you know, and it was something out of like the early 1900s. And, um, and yeah, we were, we were catching hundreds and hundreds of them a day. Um, and I think it, I think in total for our three week catch, we had over 13,000 of them, 13,500 or something that, that we had accumulated in this one field at that one location. So, so there were a lot of them. <laughs> and, that, and that was in July? This, no, this was in the um, beginning, the middle of August. Oh, okay. When we got the trap set up, it was September. And so the next three weeks in early September is when we really had them. That exponential increase in the population seemed to be what was causing all of our damage. And what, what freaked us out was in Red Delicious in the middle of August and in Empire, we just saw 15% injury on fruit in, by the end of August during harvest, those two varieties. And then moving toward Pink Lady, as more and more of the apples were removed from the orchard, the, the feeding intensity grew. You know, they go into that feeding frenzy prior to overwintering. And then by the middle of September on, Pink Lady were decimated. You know, we saw Golden Delicious, Pink Lady at like 21, 22% injury. That was scary. That's when we realized that, okay, you know, we're, <laughs> we're in this for the long haul. So I'm not really sure you know, where, where you put the barometer, but it seemed to me that the jalapenos were, were the red flag. You know, the canary in the coal mine passes out. <laughs> Everything. <laughs> no, that makes, that makes a lot of sense though, because that indicates to you that that first, um, I guess the nymphs, that nymphal outbreak is on the move. And if they're coming down to find vegetables to hang out on, and then you know that they're in a population that's sizable enough early enough in the season? Well, the jalapeno site 
had on on the east side of the of the block. So it was probably um, a five acre block of of jalapeno. And to the east of that, there was a grove of locust trees, black locust. And to the west of that, there was a knoll of Atlantis. <laughs> so, so it was like a perfect scenario, you know, icebergs, the Titanic, everything's lining up for, for this bloody disaster. The inverse of that though, at Campbell Hall, where we had these high percentages of damage, <laughs> there were oaks, you know, there were hardwoods that, you know, were late seed producing plants, you know, it, it just didn't seem like it was in line with the, the host trees that were available for the jalapeno infestation uh, of brown marmorant. So that, that's always been a, a bit of a, a, a problem, you know, where you don't have solid indicators to say, oh yeah, well, we've got locusts here, we've got islandish, of course this is going to be an issue, so we're going to put the traps out here. In the Campbell Hall site, we were a bit blindsided by all that. They could have just as easily have just been in, in trees a mile away and have decided that they were heading in that direction and they found what they needed to find because they're pretty decent flyers, from what I understand. There was one guy, I, I wasn't sure to believe him or not, now I think I do. There's a guy that was on Staten Island. He worked as like a park ranger and he said he saw thousands of these crossing the Hudson River. I just sort of envisioned the Revolutionary Army, you know, in their boats. And these things were flying over on mass. And he, and he saw them land and he went out there and he looked and lo and behold, they were, they were brown marmorite stink bug. So what do we need to know here? What are we taking from that? We aren't too worried about early season crop injury just yet. Um, we are getting to be worried about late season crop injury. So crops that are harvested later in the summer. We will get more worried about tree fruit if we start hearing reports of stink bug injury in vegetable crops like pepper. There are lots of approaches to monitoring and trapping stink bugs in your orchard. These bugs are attracted to light, and actually light is really the best way to trap them in your house. I'll include a link to the best trap for your home, but light baited traps are probably not the most appropriate for orchard settings. Let's talk about predicting risk in apple. The best way to know that there is an army of stink bugs moving in and out of your orchard is to monitor orchard borders with a pheromone baited trap. These aggregation pheromones are a little different than lures we might be used to working with. If you've ever monitored for sweet corn pests or for codling moth, you are using a sex pheromone. This is a chemical that one sex will use to find other members of the other sex, and these insects can hone right into a point source of that pheromone and, and right into the trap following that, that lure plume. These stink bug aggregation pheromones are different. They are chemicals that males and females both respond to, and they create these big stink bug parties. The method of capture, that would be the visual cues of that black pyramid trap or the awesome stopping power of a sticky card. These traps are sampling a portion of the bugs that were lured into that zone of aggregation or zone of arrestment around the point source of that pheromone. Some of us call it the party zone. 
I wanted to return to a previous conversation I had with someone who did some really terrific work at the Lusky Lab, a lab that really knows how to throw a BMSB party. I'm Rob Morrison. I'm a research entomologist with the USDA ARS Center for Grain and Animal Health Research in Manhattan, Kansas. One of the experiments I did during my postdoc, um, we looked at black pyramid traps spaced at regular intervals apart, going out kind of in, in four directions from a center point. At the center point, we had a pheromone uh, baited trap, and then the other ones were passives. And we found really that BMSB kind of aggregate in a two and a half meter radius around this around the pheromone source. And this was, you know, on kind of a background kind of mowed grass, sort of like food desert type of area. That really indicates to me that they're not really responding to the point source of the pheromone. You're using pheromones in the orchard. That that zone of aggregation you're creating is probably like the trees on either side of the trap? Yeah, so obviously it depends on the density that of the, the planting for the orchard, but um, we did um, some commercial attracting kill trials where we put a high dose of pheromone in a centrally baited tree and then kind of tarps underneath all the trees and we would spray the surrounding trees, how many BMSB were there and kind of what's the natural area of aggregation in an orchard. And we found that most of the individuals were confined to that central baited tree. And what are your feelings on recruitment? Like if you're deploying pheromones within the orchard, how much are you contributing to pulling them in? So that's a good question. And I think that at least by the time I left, we didn't have a good handle on. I know that follow-up work since then has looked at how far they're traveling to a pheromone source. Uh, see if you have a pheromone source kind of in a central area and you release um, adults from various distances away, how many are you gonna pull into that pheromone source? From what I understand, that research has shown that distance of pull is very small. And so you're likely not gonna be pulling, you know, these individuals from very great distances and then having them all like kind of clobber your orchard. Um, rather what's gonna happen is, you know, if they, if they might be like moving kind of in that area, they're gonna to go to that, to that site and then be removed from the populations. So for those of you who want to predict outbreak populations in your orchard as you are nearing harvest time, get yourself some pheromone-baited pyramid traps or sticky card traps. The pyramid traps are more sensitive than the sticky traps, but those pyramid traps are a bit more cumbersome to haul around and set up. You're going to get worried when you start catching more than 10 stink bugs per trap in the pyramid traps or more than four stink bugs per trap in the sticky cards. And if you're in New Hampshire, I'll send you some traps. Just give me a holler, write me an email. We'll pick up where we left off next time with what to do if you find a BMSB outbreak on your farm. But that's it for now. Thank you so much to Nicole Quinn of Virginia Tech, now USDA ARS, to Peter Yench at the Hudson Valley Laboratory and Rob Morrison of USDA ARS. And of course, a special thanks to Jason Lightbound who wrote and performed our theme music.
We're Informed on IPM is a production of the University of New Hampshire Cooperative Extension, an equal opportunity educator and employer. All music is used by permission or by Creative Commons licensing. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of the university, its trustees, or its volunteers. Inclusion or exclusion of commercial enterprises in this podcast does not equate endorsement. The University of New Hampshire, New Hampshire counties, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture cooperate to provide extension programming in the Granite State. Learn more at extension.unh.eu.